I am Dennis Tubergen. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. We sometimes call it RLA Radio. Glad you decided to tune in today. I'm really excited to be chatting once again on today's program with the head of research at Gold Money, Mr. Alistair McLeod. I caught up with Mr. McLeod this past week from his offices in the UK, and I'm going to chat with Alistair about how he sees what's going on in the world with the trade protectionism, with what he is going to call the end of a credit cycle, and he's going to share with you what his prediction is based on what he sees and his research, and I know you're going to find his insights to be valuable. I'll also chat with Alistair about Brexit. He's there. He's seeing what's going on firsthand. And we'll not only talk about what's going on there, but what the fallout might be here in the United States from Brexit. So I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with with Alistair. And I want to remind you, if you're a new listener, we do have a website on which you'll find a number of free resources. We're all about education here at RLA Radio. And if you would like to go check out our free weekly newsletter, if you would like to listen to past programs, and there's other resources on the site as well, all you need to do is visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And uh, you'll see a lot of free resources on the site. And I would encourage you to check that out. As far as education is concerned, today in this segment, I want to talk to you a bit about the relationship between money and debt. And I do this because maybe some of you saw the article this past week in the Wall Street Journal talking about how families are going deep in debt to stay in the middle class. Debt levels are rising. And in order to understand how this will affect the economy... And more importantly, how it might affect your nest egg, your IRA, your 401k, your Roth IRA, understanding the relationship between money and debt is important. Now, money and debt, we often think about as opposite things. In other words, we think having money is the cure for getting rid of debt. But the reality is this, money and debt are the same thing. Now, don't turn the dial thinking that I am crazy. Let me explain. Over 95% of today's money is debt. Less than 5% would be the cash or the coins or the currency that you carry around in your pocket. So let me explain that by giving you a bit of background as to how our banking system works. We operate, as does the rest of the world, under a fractional reserve banking system. Here's what that means. If you go put $10,000 into your bank, your banker has to reserve 10% or $1,000, and the banker is free to loan out the balance, or $9,000. So current reserving rules require that bankers reserve 10% of deposits. Now, as money moves from one bank to another, money is created. So let's just take a look at a hypothetical example. I go put $10,000 in my bank. My banker reserves 10% or $1,000 and loans out the other $9,000. 
That $9,000 maybe is loaned to someone to go buy a used car. That $9,000 is given to the car dealer who puts the $9,000 in her business checking account. That banker reserves 10% or $900 and loans out the next $8,100. So money is created by virtue of the fact that money is moving from bank to bank. If you visit the New York Federal Reserve Bank's website, you will see that a $100 deposit into one bank can expand to up to $1,000 with a 10% reserve requirement if money is moving from one bank to the next. So why do central bankers reduce interest rates? Because the more people borrow, the faster money moves from bank to bank, the more money is created. Now, that works just fine until debt levels reach a level that are unsustainable. Because when debt doesn't get paid, money disappears from the financial system. So historically speaking, we have this money multiplier or money throttle that central bankers like to use. Now, maybe some of you listening to this are old enough to remember the massive inflation that the United States, the United States experienced rather back in the 70s. Well, Paul Volcker, who was chair of the Federal Reserve at the time, raised interest rates to very high levels. In fact, I think I recall in the early 80s, prime interest was 21%. So if you were a business person and your loan terms were prime plus 3%, you'd be paying 24% interest on money that you borrowed. It discouraged borrowing. Not as much money was created and inflation subsided. See, when you, when you talk about inflation, when you, when you think about the definition of inflation, you think about rising prices. That's a symptom of inflation, but the real definition of inflation is an expansion of the money supply. Rising prices are just a symptom. Deflation is the polar opposite. Deflation is a contraction of the money supply. So go back to 2007 for a minute. That's when it all broke loose. That's when the financial crisis occurred. That's when the banking system needed to be bailed out. And there were a number of factors behind that, but one of the factors was the fact that bankers engaged in really risky lending practices. You've probably undoubtedly heard the term subprime mortgage. A subprime mortgage is a mortgage or a loan that's made to a borrower with less than pristine credit. Now, bankers, reserving the 10%, took the 90% that they could loan out as the real estate bubble built from 2004 to 2007, and they were loaning 100% of the purchase price of a home to a borrower with poor credit by having them show only a paycheck stub. I would call that a bonehead loan. Well, that certainly fueled the real estate bubble, which later collapsed, as bubbles always do. And at the end of the crash, Ben Bernanke, who is chair of the Federal Reserve, reduced interest rates to 0%. 
at 0% interest, certainly we can get money moving from one bank to the next very, very quickly. After all, it worked for Alan Greenspan prior to Mr. Bernanke's tenure. It had worked many times in the past. However, this time, it didn't work. 0% interest did not solve the problem. Why? Because this money multiplier or money throttle, this reducing of interest rates only works if people are willing to go further into debt. A better way to put that would be people are able to go further into debt. You see, at a certain point, when debt reaches levels that are unsustainable, you cannot solve the problem by reducing interest rates. Because if you're up to your neck in debt and you cannot afford another payment, does it really matter if the interest rate is 0%? And obviously the answer is no. And that brings us to a fundamental fact about debt. Debt requires that today's production be spent to pay for yesterday's consumption. Let me repeat that. Debt requires that today's production be spent to pay for yesterday's consumption, and that leaves less of today's production to be spent today. Let me give you a simple example to hopefully make the point. You decide to go buy a new car, and you elect to pay $25,000 cash for the new car. A friend of yours sees your new car in the driveway, really likes it, and she decided to go buy a car exactly like yours and spend $25,000 on her new car as well. Here's the difference. She got a payment book. She's going to make payments on the car over 60 months. You are going to pay cash. You, by having $25,000 cash in the bank to buy the car, are spending prior production to make the purchase. See, in order to have $25,000 in the bank to buy the car, you had to go to work in the past, you had to save some of the money that you earned from those efforts, and you could then take the money out of your savings institution and buy the car. So you're spending past production. You're spending money that you earned previously. Your neighbor, by financing the car, presumably because she didn't have the money in the bank from her past production to pay cash for the car, is spending tomorrow's production to get the car. So in order to make payments on the car, your neighbor has to go to work and produce something tomorrow in order to have the money to make her car payments. That is spending tomorrow's production or future production. Here's my point. Debt consumes future production. Future production is not infinite. It's not unlimited. Future production is finite. In fact, future production is actually pretty predictable. Because future production is limited, that means debt accumulation also has to have a limit. Once you consume enough of tomorrow's production by debt service, the debt accumulation trend has to reverse. You just simply cannot accumulate more debt. So as debt levels rose and they're rising again and defaults increase, money disappears from the financial system and central bankers drop interest rates or maybe even resort to printing money. That's the point of this segment. And in the last segment of today's program, I'm going to give you some details about where we are debt-wise compared to where we were 
about 10 years ago. You'll want to stay tuned for that. Let me remind you also that we do have uh, an event in the area that you can learn more about at socialsecuritydinner.com. At that event, we talk about maximizing Social Security and minimizing taxes on retirement accounts. That's socialsecuritydinner.com. I'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me today on the program is Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair was on the program uh, about seven months ago or so. He is the head of research at Gold Money. And Alistair, pleasure to have you back on the program. Well, thank you for asking me. It's nice to be back. So, Alistair, for our listeners maybe that are not familiar with Gold Money, could you explain what the company does? Yes, of course. Gold Money stores in custody um, gold, silver, and platinum group metals uh, for its customers. And we've got, I think, around about $2.1 or $2.2 billion of customers' assets um, in custody. Um, But as well as that, um, we have an associate company called Monet, which uh, sells 24-carat gold and platinum jewelry. And that's done at a, a spread over a market price with a guaranteed buyback uh, at 10% under the market price. So that is rather like an investment, if you like. If you're an Indian or a, or Chinese, that's the way they look at their 24-karat gold jewelry. And uh, the third um, uh, arm which we have is, uh, is, is a financing arm called Lend and Borrow Trust. And what that does is it allows um, some of our larger customers to uh, raise funds against uh, gold and silver platinum group metals that they have in storage with us. So those are the three things. And I think that um, the other thing about gold money is that uh, if you have a gold money account, you can also have um, a preloaded debit card, um, which you can use um, to uh, turn that into money. Because after all, we regard gold in particular as a form of money rather than, a, uh, than an investment. And as uh, paper currencies go down the tubes, which I think inevitably at some stage they will, uh, those of us that have gold, I think, um, you know, would like to have the uh, experience of being able to use it as money again. So that's roughly what we do. Interesting. So, Alistair, when you were on the program before, you were predicting that, um, at least in terms of uh, pricing gold in fiat currencies, that gold was likely ready for a breakout. Turns out you were absolutely on target. Um, What do you see as far as gold prices uh, from this point? Well, um, I I think... Outlook is uh, teetering towards recession, 
And it could be quite a deep recession uh, because we are at the end of the credit cycle. And that coincides with trade protectionism coming out of America, particularly aimed at China. Those two things together could well have a synergistic effect to uh, undermine the global economy. And uh, that being the case, obviously the Fed is beginning to sense this, and uh, they have started to reduce their interest rates. Now, if you're a bullion dealer, you're sitting there looking at um, a position which is inevitably very short gold, not just on, on COMEX, but also in London. Uh, and also, um, if you're a bullion bank, you will probably have unallocated accounts for your customers, which basically means you owe them gold, you don't have the gold. It's like fractional reserve banking, but in gold. So there are lots of liabilities there, which suddenly get very, very expensive if the gold price starts rising. Now, the reason that interest rates are important is that it would appear, increasingly appear, that interest rates are going to go down to zero in dollars, and there could well be pressure on the Fed to interest rate to reduce negative interest rates. Now, the reason this is important is that gold, under normal circumstances, has a natural interest rate of around about 2 to 3%. Let's say around about 2%. Now, so when you see interest rates, particularly the Fed funds rate and uh, U.S. Treasury rates, go down below that 2% level, you're beginning to create the conditions for a backwardation in the gold price. Now, if we're then talking about the prospect, perhaps, of negative interest rates, you're talking about putting the gold price into permanent backwardation because of the negative interest rate on money. Now, if you're going back to being a bullion bank, you're sitting here thinking the chances of this happening appear to be increasing all the time. Therefore, we must cover our backsides as much as we can either by reducing our gold liabilities or by getting in bullion to cover them as much as possible. And I think that what we have seen with that move which broke through the 1350 level and took us up briefly last week to about 1540, 1550, uh, is we have seen the professional boys suddenly realize they have got to ensure they're not running uncontrolled short positions. The uh, speculators, I don't think, yet have really got very much on board. Um, and interestingly, the physical demand is now beginning to come through, not um, uh, Indians and Chinese so much, but more central banks and ETFs. And the ETFs have added something like, five, I, I think it's 550 tons, something like that, over the last three months. Uh, that have been reported, and that is a significant, significant uplift in demand for physical gold. So all in all, it looks set fair, I think, after a bit of consolidation for a, um, a far greater rise ahead. So, Alistair, uh, you, you have to be, as you say, bullish on gold moving ahead. Um, let me just uh, maybe make a comment and then have you comment. Uh, it just seems to me that uh, with negative interest, uh, yeah, I think negative yielding debt, it's totaling like $17 trillion or so. You can correct me if, if, if that's not correct. That's, but, that's correct. So, so with that level of negative yielding debt, 
Uh, and given that the stock markets around the world seem to be extremely overvalued, uh, you know, you put money in gold and maybe you don't see a, a yield. I mean, when a CD is yielding 10%, that's obviously attractive, but that's not the case anymore. Doesn't this whole environment just further make the case for gold? Uh, yes, it certainly does. And I, I re-emphasize the interest rate situation with gold. People say, and this is a big mistake, people say that gold um, earns no interest. That is completely wrong. If you look at a bar in your hand, it's exactly the same as having $40,000 in your hand or whatever the figure is. You know, if you, have, if you have dollar notes in your hand, that earns no interest. If you have a gold bar in your hand, that earns no interest. If, on the other hand, you have gold and you store it in capital markets and you, you, you decide to make it available to capital markets, then it will earn interest. And I think that's an extremely important point to understand. And then, um, uh, having grasped that point, then the point that you make about negative interest rates or negative yields on $17 trillion worth of bonds around the world um, uh, has an added importance. Because uh, people will wake up, and it's, a, it's always a slow process, but w and when you haven't got any gold, and all your peers haven't got any gold, and physical gold is not a regulated investment, you're very slow to wake up to the, um, the reality that instead of having a bond where you are being taxed annually, you can have gold, which you can lend out for, as I said earlier, around about 2% in normal markets then um, suddenly gold really does look extremely attractive. And I think it's the waking up to that dynamic which um, we're going to see in the coming years, or coming months maybe even. So, Alistair, what's your take on other metals? Let's just talk about silver, platinum, palladium. Do you have an opinion? Uh, yes, I, I tend not to follow the uh, platinum group metals uh, too closely because um, – our customers are really very much into gold and silver. Silver is fascinating. Um, it's roughly twice as volatile as gold. Um, and this year so far, it's had a long period of underperformance. In other words, when gold goes up, silver hasn't gone up by that twice as much. If anything, it underperformed gold rather than outperformed it. Um, but that started correcting fairly recently, I think about um, a couple of months ago. And since then, uh, silver has really been um, uh, in a very, very powerful move. Uh, given that I see gold continuing on upwards, I would suggest that silver is likely to continue on upwards as well, but probably at a faster pace, somewhere between one and a half and two times the pace of gold. So where do you see silver's uh, price target going out 12 to 18 months? Do you have a target in mind? No, I never, ever have price targets. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because it's, you may as well throw a dart at a dartboard. Um, but what I, would, what I would say is that if you look at the gold-silver ratio, that currently is around about 80 or so. Um, it recently hit a high, I think, of about 94, 95. Um, I would expect that to go down towards uh, the 50 level over a period of time. If you look medium term, it could go down to 50. So if you have a rising gold price, let's say gold continues on up towards the 2000 level um, and, you know, maybe a bit beyond, then that gives you an enormous boost in terms of price performance measured in fiat currencies if you own an element of silver as well as your core holding in gold. 
Well, we're chatting today with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research uh, at Gold Money. And uh, the good news is we have Alistair for a couple segments today. So I will be back after these words and continue my conversation with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure today of chatting once again with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money, and it's always a pleasure to have him on the program. And Alistair, in the last segment, uh, we were chatting a bit about uh, gold and silver, and obviously um, economic and political situations are potentially behind some of the uh, the increase in, 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 in prices here in, in fiat currency terms. And you are in the UK as we're chatting today, and there is a headline here that is huge, and it has to do with, with Brexit. Uh, fill the listeners in as to uh, what's going on in the UK. Well, this is um, this is this has been uh, the sort of political entertainment we rarely have. Um, I mean, each week is almost more horrific than the last. Um, the basic story so far is that uh, back in 2016, we voted for Brexit. Uh, we then um, had uh, Mrs. Theresa May as Prime Minister. She then held um, a general election to get a working majority in the House of Commons to deliver Brexit. She failed to get that uh, uh, a really clear majority, and consequently, uh, she has been struggling. She had been struggling, and it turns out that um, from everything that we have seen, that actually she was always a Remainer, her Chancellor was always a Remainer, and what they were trying to do was not deliver Brexit, but appear to be delivering Brexit. When that failed so disastrously, it was clear that the Conservative Party was in a state of collapse. They needed to recover the situation, and that's why Boris Johnson was appointed um, the new Prime Minister, the new leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. He is determined to get us out on the 31st of October, which is the last date that was agreed between Mrs. May and the EU. Now, um, the Parliament has been resisting this because the vast majority of uh, members of Parliament are Remainers. The establishment um, is Remainers. You have an establishment here which is so out of touch with the electorate in exactly the same way as Donald Trump so cleverly identified in America in his election as president in, I think that was 2017. So there is a similarity, if you like, in the situation uh, in that respect. Now, uh, the Labour Party um, has gone heavily Marxist, uh, which is uh, really quite extraordinary. But anyway, there seems to be a cycle uh, in that direction. Um, they, are, um, they are suggesting that we have another um, a referendum, having agreed some sort of deal. I mean, all this is just so such pie in the sky. It is... It is um, just noise. It is extraordinary. Um, Parliament, on the other hand, has a majority over the government and thinks it can force the government to do things that it wants. Um, within uh, Boris Johnson's government, there is a special advisor, a man called Dominic Cummings. 
Now, Dominic Cummings is, has got an exceptionally sharp mind, and he is very focused and entirely ruthless in, in, in getting an objective. It was him who organized the official Vote Leave campaign back in 2016. It was him who reorganized the education department where Michael Gove was, was uh, the Secretary of State and has made some uh, really very, very important um, uh, progress, if you like, uh, in that department going back. So this is a man who succeeds. He is um, running the strategy, in effect, for Boris Johnson. He is the chef de cabinet, if I can call it that. Uh, and uh, Dominic Cummings um, is entirely ruthless. The first thing he has done is he has cleared out the hard remainers in the Conservative um, Parliamentary Party. That means that the Conservatives have lost their Commons majority, but they're not frightened of an election because suddenly the Conservatives, from having been literally te only 10% of the population would vote for them, they're now well ahead of everybody else. So it's been a remarkable turnaround. The public see what the Commons are doing, denying what the public voted for, and they are disgusted. Boris Johnson has public support. The one thing that the other parties are frightened of now is having an election. But because we now have something called the Fixed Term Parliament Act, that is not in Boris Johnson's immediate control. But um, the strategy is working in that direction. Government is, the government has now prorogued Parliament, so MPs can't um, do anything about the situation. They all go off on holiday, and then they have the conference season. Um, the, uh, that allows government a certain amount of breathing space to plan how to deal with the current situation. I would suggest that there's a very strong possibility that Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings will find a solution to this and we will be out, possibly with no deal, on the 31st of October. So for, exactly where we are. So for, for our listeners here in the United States that uh, maybe don't completely understand the implications of um, of, of Brexit as, as far as being out of uh, the, the group. Uh, can you explain what, what, what likely uh, will be the effects for the average citizen in the UK? Well, um, the, the, there are two, two important reasons for getting out. The first is um, to remove the interference of the European Court of Justice and Brussels over c controlling, if you like, um, uh, our affairs. So it's returning that sovereignty to Parliament. That's the first thing. The second thing is trade. And, of course, it's on trade where opinions really differ. There is, if you like, um, I mean, the, the, the previous administration under, un, under Theresa May uh, continually told us that if there was no deal, then what it would mean is it would be absolute disaster. The, you know, the lorries would stop flowing across the channel. Um, we would be short of medicines. You know, we would be on, there would be no food imports. I mean, it's, it, it, it's scare tactics. And even Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, joined in on this. So um, that, I think, is rather like the Millennium Bug. Uh, I don't know if you remember the Millennium Bug, but that was going to be a horrendous problem with all the computers. 
um, you know, sort of having to deal with a new millennium on, on, on all their internal clocks and so on and so forth. Was it a problem? No, it wasn't at all. And I think that is likely to be the situation with Brexit. I mean, one thing that is important to understand is that coming out of the EU means that something like 12,500 um, items, uh, consumer items, will no longer have EU tariffs. And those EU tariffs, for example, on orange juice, to keep um, the Spanish orange growers uh, happy and to uh, make Californian imports expensive, uh, the EU has a 30% tax on orange juice. You know, that's the sort of thing they do. It's all protectionism, protectionism. So that's going to go, and the general price level in this country should fall as a result. Now, what that means is that people will have more money in their pockets to spend, and they will get a better standard of living. But, of course, nobody will admit that amongst the Remainers. They don't understand it, actually, in the, for the main part. And it's very difficult when you, you're continually shot propaganda um, from people who have a vested interest in persuading you to remain in the EU. It's very difficult to know what the outcome is likely to be. But I think that this will pass. It won't be a problem. You will find that businesses with, which export to the EU will still export to the EU. If the EU gets a little more difficult, then they will merely reorientate their business towards new markets. And in any event, our exports to the EU have been declining as a portion of the total over the last 10 years anyway. So it's the direction of travel, if you like, for our economy to get out of the EU. So actually, it's going to be pretty good news, in my opinion. Well, Alistair, we've got just a few minutes left. Um, we chatted uh, before we actually started recording this segment about uh, the Hong Kong protests. And I know you've got some interesting insights on that, too. Can you share those with the listeners? Yes, I'd be happy to, Dennis. Um, I think we have to understand that the importance of Hong Kong is financial as far as China is concerned. China plans to spend a lot of money on her own and trans-Asian infrastructure, you know, the Silk Roads and all the rest of it. And uh, for much of that, she requires foreign investors to come in and help finance those projects. It is with that in mind that she set up something called Shanghai Connect. Now, Shanghai Connect allows uh, foreign investors to invest in China through Hong Kong, and when they want to take their money out, they're free to take it out, no exchange controls, nothing like that at all. That is the importance of Hong Kong. Now, America has a problem, and that is she has an enormous deficit, a budget deficit, and that deficit needs financing. There is a growing reluctance among many countries to continue to finance America's deficit. And the last thing that she can afford is to have um, global capital attracted into investment in China when she needs that investment. And I think that is the background to the agitation that obviously has occurred on the streets of Hong Kong. As far as the Chinese are concerned, they are convinced, and their intelligence has told them this in the past, they are convinced that America has a fairly um, significant role behind these riots. Now, I don't know if that's true because I'm not pri privy to the information, but I can tell you that's what the Chinese believe. 
That being the case, you can see how important Hong Kong is. You can see why they backed off this very ill-advised extradition law, which um, uh, Hong Kong had been commanded to introduce. Uh, and they now hope that the whole thing will die down. It is going to be slow to die down, I think, because the interests are that portfolio flows must go to America and not go to China. And I think if you understand that, you understand Hong Kong. Well, our guest today has been Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money. And Alistair, always appreciate your perspective on gold and what's going on around the planet and uh, would love to have you back down the road. That would be very much my pleasure, Dennis. We will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening today. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that money and debt are the same thing. If you're just tuning in, 95% of today's money is debt. That's how our monetary system works. When you go put money in the bank, your banker reserves 10% of your deposit and loans out the other 90%. And as money moves from one bank to the next, the money supply increases. Now, when debt expands, the money supply expands because they're the same thing. However, when debt levels reach unsustainable levels and defaults on debt begin, then the trend reverses and we have a deflationary event. Now, as I talked about in the first segment, the definition of inflation is the expansion of the money supply. Deflation is the exact polar opposite. It's the contraction of the money supply. And I gave the example of the late 70s, early 80s, when inflation was out of control and then chair of the Federal Reserve, a guy by the name of Paul Volcker, raised interest rates to such levels that very, very few people were borrowing money and the money supply contracted and inflation subsided. An interesting thing happened, almost the opposite thing happened after the financial crisis. When the stock market crashed, when the real estate market crashed, Ben Bernanke, who was chair of the Federal Reserve at the time, decided to drop interest rates to 0% and nothing happened. Why? Because collectively speaking, we had reached our ability to service any more debt. So then the Fed decided to engage in quantitative easing, which is literally creating money uh, out of thin air. Now, I bring this up because there was a Wall Street Journal article published this past week that talked about the fact that families are going deep into debt in order to stay in the middle class. Medical care, college, houses, and cars have all become more expensive, but incomes have remained relatively stationary. 
Debt accumulation seems to be making up the shortfall. Debt accumulation seems to be making up the difference. Well, a little common sense applied to this statistic will tell you that this cannot go on forever. You can't put living expenses on credit cards forever. Now, when you look at consumer debt, forget about mortgages for a minute. Let's just look at consumer debt. It now stands at about $4 trillion. That is an all-time nominal high and adjusted for inflation. It's also an all-time real high. Now, mortgage debt dropped after the financial crisis, at least partially due to defaults, people walking away from their mortgages, but it is also now rising again. Student loan debt has been a statistic that I have been tracking closely, and student debt is now more than $1.5 trillion. Automobile debt has exploded over the past 10 years. It's up about 40% over that time frame and is now $1.3 trillion. Now, when we start talking about $1.5 trillion and $1.3 trillion, sometimes it's hard to grasp what those numbers mean. But in the case of automobile debt, standing at $1.3 trillion, I did a little bit of research before today's program. That's enough money to buy more than 40 million base model Chevy Silverado pickups. About 43 million to be exact. 43 million new pickups can be purchased for $1.3 trillion. Now, the journal article said the average loan size for new cars is up after 11%, or is up 11% rather, in the last decade, even after adjusting for inflation. In fact, Experian reports the average loan for a new car is now $32,000. The bottom line is this. That is simply a lot of debt. And as we've been talking about on today's program, it's important to remember that in our banking and economic system, debt is money. One person's debt is another person or institution's asset. Banks have debt as assets. Should debt go unpaid, money disappears from the financial system, creating a deflationary event. Now, a deflationary event, event typically sees asset prices fall. That usually means bad news for stocks and bad news for real estate. Increasing debt levels are sustainable, but only if incomes are increasing proportionately. But the data suggests this is not happening. Incomes are flat. The journal article said that the median household income in the United States was $61,000 at the end of calendar year 2017. And that data comes from the Census Bureau. Adjusting for inflation, that is just above the 1999 level. But not adjusted for inflation, incomes are up about 135% over that time frame. Compare incomes up 135% with the average four-year tuition rate at a four-year public college being up 549%. Income up 135%, tuition up 549%. Why is that? I just told you. There's a lot of student loan debt. 
And you cannot have a bubble without easy credit. And the reason tuition rates are up, that, that huge percentage is that it's easy to get a student loan. Healthcare expenditures up 276%, while incomes were up only 135%. Again, somewhat a financed expenditure or shared expenditure via insurance. And housing prices up 188% compared to incomes up only 135%. The bottom line is this, it's harder to remain middle class, and credit card debt is reflecting that. Uh, If you take a look at credit card debt, it was up 9% in the first quarter of 2019. Now, this cannot go on forever. We will have to see a deflationary event at some future point. The words of economist Herbert Stein ring true here. Mr. Stein said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop, and this will as well. You just want to be sure that you're ready. We have some resources to help you get ready. I would encourage you, if you've not already done so, to attend one of our events where we talk about these issues. We talk about tax savings opportunities on your IRA and 401k, and we talk about how to maximize your Social Security benefits. You can check out our most recent event or our upcoming event, I should say, at socialsecuritydinner.com. That's socialsecuritydinner.com. Thanks for tuning in today. I'll be back again next week. 